Thank you so much for the kids singing and for the beautiful word by the Belong Ministry and for the opportunity today to gather virtually and celebrate all that God is doing. My name is Richard Dahlstrom. I'm senior pastor at Bethany Community Church and teaching pastor. It's an honor to be with you today. As we continue a series in Shalom, I'll read our scripture, pray, give you a bit of a context, and then we'll begin in our time together this morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from uh, actually the book of Deuteronomy. And so let me just turn to Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter. Listen as I read. You shall not worship any other God or serve any other God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that as we gather in various locations in this winter of discontent, we're mindful that you remain ever the same, inviting us to, as we heard last week in our time together, to yoke ourselves with you and so know your peace. And our desire, Father, is not just to know that as individuals, but to know that in our families as well and beyond. So we commit these moments to you now. We invite you to teach us, give us hearts to respond to what you revealed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name, who is our hope. Amen. We are in a Shalom series, and I'm going to give you just a bit of an overview here so that you understand where we've been where we'll be going. And so as we see here, there's this bit of a Fibonacci spiral that articulates shalom. And uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the notion that God wants to heal our spirit because Christ lives in us. And so we are, quote unquote, complete in Christ. My spirit is yoked with Christ, always wanting to do God's will, desiring nothing less than the wholeness of God's creative life and regenerative power and holiness pouring through me into the world. Last week, we looked at our soul, which essentially, for the sake of simplification in this moment, is our personality and showed how God's desire is to so saturate our personality with the peace of God that we begin to display that peace outwardly. And this week, we look at one aspect of where that peace is to be displayed outwardly, i.e. our families and family systems. Next week, God's peace pouring into our culture. The subsequent week, God's peace and shalom pouring into creation. So that's kind of where we are in the middle of this series right now, looking at families. Let me just ask a question at the outset. When you look at the scriptures, you understand that uh, as you're trying to appoint leaders, God has qualifications for leaders related to uh, family. In other words, uh, if you, you know, hit your kids... If you're a philanderer, if you're sleeping around, you're disqualified for leadership. So I'm asking a question here. Why do qualifications for leadership include family stuff? And then I'm asking another question, which is this. Why, in spite of this high standard for uh, leadership qualifications in the Bible, why is this standard contradicted by countless leaders in the Bible? In other words, Jacob fails, David fails, Solomon fails to meet the standard that God articulates in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy 
about leadership qualification. You're to be, you know, faithful and kind and gentle. And here are these guys who are disasters and chosen by God. Well, I want to make an observation here that I think is significant. Our families are intended by God to be a place of shalom, a place wherein we find a place of safety and security. But because we are imperfect people, we fall short of this perfect shalom. So God has a standard here, and we often find ourselves here. And what we'd like to look at this morning is how we move from here to here in our family systems. And the challenge inherent in this movement is this. We are likely to pass on the dysfunctions that surround us in our family systems because those dysfunctions often become normal to us. When God says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, that God visits the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, it's tempting to think that God is actively handing out curses. And what we mean by that is, oh, if you grew up in an abusive family, you're more likely to become an abuser. If you grew up in an alcoholic family, you're more likely to become a a, a chronic drinker. If you uh, grew up in a family of cheaters, you become a cheater. If you grew up in a family of liars, you become a liar. (laughs) And there is a reality in, in that. God isn't handing out curses. God is simply saying the environment in which you grow up becomes your norm. But the reality is this, the gospel comes in and says this, the curse can be broken. Our families then are are able to break this curse. I had uh, the privilege of running a hospitality ministry with my wife. It was called the Lathia Fellowship through the first half of the 90s. And we had a guest book and we would ask people, sometimes as they're signing the guest book, are we done? What's wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Can you guys hear this okay better? Is it better now? Okay, I'll continue on. Here we go. We had a guest book, and uh, we asked uh, our guests to sign the guest book and say what was meaningful to them, right? And so uh, I always was expecting them to say, man, Richard, we loved your teaching. Well, that didn't happen very often, actually. What happened is, I'll never forget, I've got some comments here that, that I remember that stu- uh, stuck out to me. One guest said, you know, the, the highlight of my weekend, what stuck out to me was playing Legos with your kids. Another said, you know, the highlight was being at a family table having dinner and there was no arguing. One guy said, I'd never experienced that. One guy said, being at a family table and eating. I'd never experienced that. So people would gather and we shared our family life. And we came to discover that many people had never experienced the degree of normal family life that was our normal family life. And we weren't a perfect family by any means. But people are hungry for this shalom that God desires to bring to us. And so our families then become this crucible in which our faith has the opportunity to be formed 
and transformed so that we might become in our families instruments of shalom, instruments of peace. And what we'd like to do this morning is look at three case studies in family and soul transformation. We look at Jacob, we look at Joseph, we look at Judah. Jacob, the grabber, he's called. Joseph, the quote-unquote good son. Judah, the quote-unquote most improved player, right? So we're going to look at these things, and as we go through these, we'll see the means by which God transforms us so that we move toward a greater representation of the heart of God, that greater representation of shalom. And we begin with Jacob. If you know Jacob's story, Jacob is uh, the son of Isaac, and Jacob was a twin. There was Jacob and Esau, and uh, Jacob was the youngest, though they were twins. He was born just behind Esau. And so Jacob grew up in this family where culturally the oldest son inherited all the land. That was just the way that it was. And in addition to the oldest son inheriting all the land, the father Isaac was unabashedly favoring Esau, the older son, over Jacob, the younger son. So Jacob is, in a sense, doubly at a loss. He won't get the land, and he won't get the blessing. And yet, he wants, with all his might, the land and the blessing. And God has said to Jacob, I will give you the land and the blessing. I'll give you the land and the blessing. It's yours. Don't worry about it. I will give it to you. And yet, Jacob, unable to believe that God will give these things to him, spends his entire life trying to take through deception, fighting, theft, what God wants to freely give. And that becomes Jacob's character, seeking to acquire by work and deception and fighting and theft what God wants to freely give. And the fruit of this in Jacob's life creates a personality characterized by fear, anxiety, anger, and blindness to the gifts of God. So that by the end of Jacob's life, in Genesis chapter 49, when there is this quote-unquote happy ending, which we'll see in a few minutes, at the end of Jacob's life, this is the summary statement of Jacob's life. First of all, is he chosen by God? Yes. Chosen, yes. Loved, yes. Saved, yes. In God's story, yes. What's the summary statement of his life? Few and evil have been the years of my life. Boom. What a tragedy. God loves me. God blesses me. God knows me. God is for me, and yet I cannot receive it. That's Jacob. If I can't receive it, but I want it, I got to go get it on my own. That's Jacob. In a book entitled Radical Optimism, Practical Spirituality in an Uncertain World, the author reminds us that the root of our evil stems from our desire to preserve. She writes this, and I quote, it's my contention that evil comes about because of what is perceived as a basic metaphysical need in the agent, the person committing the evil. The need to stay alive, the need to maintain one's being, the need for a blessing, Where moral evil is involved, the agent identifies exhaustively with the image, the self, the descriptive self, and instinctively recognizes this primordial need to take something. And so in order to survive, Jacob, in his mind, 
believes that he must receive the inheritance. The inheritance that he believes belongs to his brother and he must receive the blessing, the blessing that he believes his father will give his older brother. So I must receive the blessing. I must receive the inheritance. And not only that, listen, I must receive it by any means necessary. The ends justify the means because the means is right. That's Jacob. So if I have to cheat, I'll cheat. If I have to steal, I'll steal. If I have to kill, I'll kill. Because, you know, my cause is just. And as a result of this, Jacob cuts an immoral deal with his own twin brother, whereby Jacob steals, essentially, Esau's entire inheritance, which is a piece of real estate the size of Vermont. He gets it from Esau in exchange for a bowl of soup. Later, when his dad has gone blind and he wants to bless Esau, Jacob will wear Esau's clothes and pretend to be him in front of his dad, who, when he smells Esau's clothes on Jacob's body, thinks it's Esau and blesses him. So he steals the blessing by deception. He stole the inheritance. He stole the blessing. And as a result, Esau makes a plan to kill Jacob after his dad dies. So Jacob leaves the country for a few days, becomes a refugee, and a few days becomes 25 years. 25 years away from the place of Shalom, the land of promise that God had given to the family. 25 years of looking over his shoulder. 25 years of continued deception. Always trying to earn or steal what God wants to freely give. Jacob is non-grace. That's Jacob. Listen, friends, it's not only Jacob, it's many of us. Many of us who are Christian. Because somehow Christianity has become for us not foundationally empty hands of broken people receiving. Somehow Christianity has become for us this exclusive club of those who get it right and perform well. And I'm here to say to you, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm only here, I believe, at Bethany Community Church as your pastor because in 1976, I walked through the doors of Bethany Community Church as a college student. And the pastor, my predecessor at the time, Pastor John McCullough, he pulled a book out of the pulpit and he said, we're all going to read this book together. The book was entitled Free for the Taking. It was a book written by a professor from the University of Washington who was a, a, you know, a Christ follower, went to Bible studies, knows God, loves God, and by the way, had a nervous breakdown and shared the story of his own brokenness courageously. And I was like this, I have never heard this before. I grew up in a Christian, a Christian community where, you know, if you, if you confess to lust, if you confess to greed, if you confess to fear, if you confess to anxiety, man, you were on the outs. It was over for you. So everyone was okay, even though no one was okay. And the problem is when I present myself as okay or work hard enough to be okay, I utterly miss the story of hope that God wants to write through me, utterly. The foundation must be this. I'm not okay. We have to start there. Everybody has to start there. So I read this book, Free from the Taking, Free for, Free for the Taking, as a college student, and I remember attending Seattle Pacific University going up. Some of you know this little chapel 
in one of the office buildings that has uh, many of the you know, religious studies professors in that, in, that, in that building. And I went up in that chapel, and I'll never forget, laying down under a pew and just kind of weeping and receiving God's love and confessing to God my anger at God for, t- for taking my dad, my anger at God over my relationship with my mother, my anger at my, my mom, my frustration over not knowing my biological family roots. I just poured it all out. And not only those things, but the subsequent failures in my life that stemmed from those things. Man, we need that kind of freedom. Because here's the deal, friends. None of us are okay. That's why I love this story. So that's Jacob. Few and evil have been my years. Man, he never enjoyed the life God had for him. He received the blessing, but he never enjoyed the life because he wasn't living his life on the ground of grace. We got to get there. There's a second story. It's, it's the story of Joseph. Let me just tell you the story, and then I'll make a, 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 su- a summary statement. It'll come up on the screen for you. Joseph is the one of Jacob. Now we go, remember, Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob ends up giving birth to 12 sons and a daughter. So Joseph is one of those sons. Jacob, who we just heard about, had four wives. One of those wives was his favorite wife. Joseph was one of two sons born of that favored wife, okay? You got to know the story to understand the movie. So, so uh, Jacob has a favored son, Joseph. And he's one of the youngest sons. Now, imagine... If you're the youngest, that you're given supervisorial authority over all your older brothers, like 10 older brothers. I'm just wondering how that's going to sit with the older brothers. And I'm thinking, not so well, right? And in fact, that's exactly what Jacob does. He gives Joseph authority to, quote unquote, manage his older brothers. And so Joseph will go from the comfort of the home out to check on his brothers who are in the heat of the field. And by the way, Joseph is wearing uh, really nice kind of Armani clothes or whatever you want to say, whereas uh, the, 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 the brothers shop at Goodwill. So better in clothes, in management rather than a day laborer, loved by the father unabashedly, in a way that favors Joseph over all the other brothers. I mean, it's a, it's a sad tale. And as a result of this, the brothers hate Joseph, right? Deeply loved by his dad, hated by all the other brothers. Some of you grew up in families where there's unabashed favoritism. It's not pretty. Well, this is the situation. And Joseph, in my opinion, lacks quite a bit of emotional intelligence because he also has these dreams and in these dreams joseph sees himself ruling over his brothers right so he decides okay you know i'm gonna 
I'm going to go um, tell my brothers these dreams that I've had in which I'm ruling over them. The sun, the moon, 11 stars bowing down to me, right? Oh, you know, I was, a, I was a stalk of wheat. You guys were all stalks of wheat. Your stalks collapsed and were bowing down in front of me. And so imagine, you know, the favored brother in the Armani clothes goes out to talk to his brothers who are working in the heat of the day. He says, hey, guys, I had another dream. And you're all bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? Well, not so awesome. They hate him. So what do they do? Well, eventually, Judah, who's our next character, decides after Joseph has been beaten up by the brothers and put in a pit, they were going to leave him to die. Judah decides we're going to sell him as a slave. So he is sold as a slave, hauled down to Egypt. Uh, When he's hauled down to Egypt, uh, he finds favor in the household of a powerful man in Egypt uh, everything, he, like he's the COO of this family and everything's left in his charge. This guy's wife finds Joseph attractive, tries to seduce him. He refuses to sleep with her. She frames him for sexual assault. He's tossed in prison. In prison, he interprets the dreams of some guys and uh, those guys forget about him and he remains in prison, forgotten, neglected, betrayed, sold, framed for, for, for rape, unjustly accused, tried, found guilty, and it's over for him. Like, he's got nothing, no family, no freedom, no, no role, no authority. All he has is God's vision. But here's the thing. Joseph has nothing but vision. So he clings to the vision. And in doing so, more significantly, clings to the God who is the source of the vision. Don't you love that? All I have is this word that God spoke to me. I have meaning. I have a calling. I have a purpose. That's what, he doesn't have anything outwardly. His, his reputation is gone. His family is gone. His freedom is gone. But he has a vision. And, and when he clings to the vision, he clings to the God who was the source of the vision. And this leads for him to a life of endurance. Like 25 years, he's clinging to the vision. And because he's clinging to the vision, when he is eventually elevated into a position of authority, he's freed from any bitterness. He doesn't bring revenge on his family. Far from bringing revenge on his family, he blesses his family and saves his family from starvation and destruction. So last week we saw that when we're yoked to the giver of our vision, we find shalom. We're not destroyed by by our situations. We can overcome. Jacob is not destroyed by the hatred of his brothers. Jacob is not destroyed by his abuse and sale into, into slavery and his subsequently being framed for attempted rape and tossed in prison and forgotten. These things deepened his Connection to the gear of the vision because that's all he had. He'd lost family, freedom, reputation, but God could never be taken from him. This is the silver lining in every loss. Of course, it's not appropriate to offer that silver lining as a platitude in the moment of someone in the midst of loss. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry. 
You know, you still have God, don't do that. But it's nonetheless true. Because the point is exactly what Joseph says at the end of the story to his brothers who'd sold him into slavery. He said, listen, you meant it for evil, but I'm telling you, don't worry about it. God used it for good just as God can use everything for good if we allow God to do so. God's not dishing out suffering. God's not dishing out generational sin. But God is saying this, whatever it is that is your lot in life, I will use it for your transformation. The point is exactly what Joseph said. God uses our situations to transform us. We're not granted immunity from the effects of living in a fallen world, but we are offered the promise that God can and will use every single event to move us toward wholeness. Man, that's good news. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says this, in everything give thanks. We can give thanks, not for the thing, but for the reality that God can use the bad thing to move me toward the life for which I'm created, a life of mercy and justice and service and holiness and joy and wisdom and peace. God can use everything in that way. And God did use everything in that way in the life of Joseph. Now, finally, we want to look at the, at the life of Judah because Judah's, I think, to me, the most significant of the three in this sense. Judah wins the most improved award, right? He moves from a disaster of a human to someone who embodies the character of Jesus. Let me just tell you his story, first of all. You remember he hated his brother Joseph. You remember that his, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Subsequent to selling Joseph into slavery, Judah goes on and he spends some time um, in, in kind of this disastrous unfolding of, of his family he marries, he has three sons. Uh, when his oldest son is old enough to marry, uh, a match is made, as was the custom, with a woman named Tamar. And then we read that uh, Judah's oldest son was evil, so right after he got married, God killed him. So then, as was the custom, Judah marries uh, his second son. He matches his second son with Tamar. Tamar is now to marry the other son with the understanding that the offspring of that union would uh, belong, in a sense, to the oldest son's inheritance, right? So, so the second son marries Tamar, doesn't want to share an inheritance with the oldest and departed son, so he spills his seed, it's not in your children's Bible, so don't look. He spills a seed. It says God was not pleased with that either. Boom, he's dead. So now, uh, two sons dead. He has one more son. Judah, like it never enters his mind that the problem could be his sons. He thinks the problem is Tamar. So he goes to Tamar and says, listen, uh, my youngest son is too young. Why don't you wait? Don't marry him yet. And it becomes apparent after a few years that uh, he is never going to allow Tamar to marry the youngest son. Well, Tamar then has no identity because in that culture, you have no identity apart from being married. And so um, she learns at some point that Judah is going down to a certain village to have his sheep sheared. 
And Judah, by this time, his wife has died. Uh, Judah wants to visit a prostitute. This is God's chosen family, by the way, right? Judah wants to visit a prostitute. So um, Tamar hears of this. She puts on the veil that is customary for prostitutes. And Judah goes and sleeps with Tamar, has sex with Tamar, doesn't, not knowing it's Tamar, and impregnates her. Uh, he leaves essentially his phone with her as a collateral down payment until he can bring her a sheep. And then uh, he, he goes home. And then some weeks later, one of his assistants comes to him and says, hey, do you know what's up with your, with your uh, daughter-in-law Tamar? No, what? Well, she's been, um, she's been prostituting herself. By the way, she's pregnant now through prostitution. Here's Judah's statement. What? Bring her out and let her be burned at the stake. Man, he's righteous, isn't he? Like family values, you know, purity for them. <laughs> let her be burned. And then she gets word that she's about to be executed and sends word back to Judah saying, oh, listen, by the way, before you light the fire, just know that I'm pregnant by the man who owns this phone. And he gets his phone back, and he realizes that he'd slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking her to be a prostitute, and impregnated her. And then this is what he says, let her live, she's more righteous than I, because I didn't, I didn't allow her to marry my third son. And then, huh, she gives birth to twins, one of whom becomes part of the, the genealogy of Jesus. You can't make this up. When people ask me, by the way, this is just parenthetical, not in my notes, but when people ask me, Richard, you know, why do you believe that the Bible is true? I go, no one would write this if they were trying to sell me on the righteousness of God's people. No one would make, no one would make this up. This is like raw reality, and this is Judah. But then there's a famine, and Judah needs to go down to Egypt with his brothers to buy grain. And when he goes down to buy grain, Joseph, by this moment, the hated son, has been elevated to a position of power whereby he's giving distribution to grain during a time of famine. And then in that context of the famine, Judah moves from we are honest men, self-righteousness, to we are guilty. We sold our son as a slave. He moves from, from hatred of favored brothers to compassion for the other favored brother, Benjamin. He, he moves from fear to courage he moves from saving his life to laying down his life. In the context of the famine, he begins to look like Jesus. The, 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 the man who hated his brother, the man who sold his brother as a slave, the man who slept with his daughter-in-law, uh, uh, thinking her to be a prostitute, not knowing it was his daughter-in-law, giving birth then to someone who becomes the light of Christ. This is the one who in the end of the story looks most like Jesus. Wow. How does that happen? 
But the big question is this, what is it in the character of Judah that brought about the powerful reconciliation of the whole family? Judah brings shalom to Israel. Judah does. And Judah then, by the way, is the one who is in the line of Christ. What's God saying here? You see, Judah's in the line of Christ, not because he's perfect, but because he demonstrates, this is so important, Judah isn't perfect, but he demonstrates ongoing transformation. Yeah, that's what we all need, ongoing transformation. How does he demonstrate ongoing transformation? Well, a couple of things. First of all, curiosity and humility. In other words, uh, as, they go, as the brothers go down to Egypt to, to, to buy grain, uh, they take money out of their sacks, they give the money to, uh, to the merchant, they, their grain uh, is put in the sacks where the money was. But then as they're heading home, when they open their sacks to feed some grain to their animals, the money's in their sacks. So interesting. Uh, they could have said at this point, we've been framed, man. We gotta get a lawyer. We're gonna sue these people for defamation of character. Instead, this is what they say, what is God doing here? Do you understand? Look, at any given moment, have you been treated with perfect justice? No. Is everybody for you? No. Has everyone treated you honestly? No. But here's the question to ask. Rather than being angry and bitter, ask this question. God, what are you trying to teach me in this situation where my reputation is being maligned? Curiosity and humility. Second, courage. Judah demonstrates courage. Why? Because he confesses the sin of the family. And by the way, it's not just his sin, it's the family's sin. When someone in your family system is broken, because your family is an ecosystem, your family is broken. And so that, listen, that person's sin becomes your sin. We had some issues this week uh, related to black coffee with our uh, church up north, Bethany North, whereby people would drive through black coffee saying, you know, I'm part of the church, but I don't stand with black coffee. Uh, really, the only way this could be described is as racist statements. Now, here's the thing that I want you to hear. I, I didn't drive through and say that. Nathan didn't drive through and say that. Chris didn't drive through and say that. But someone said it at the least in the name of the church, if not in the name of Bethany Community Church. And since all of us belong to the church, it's not just that person's problem, it's our problem. It's not just that person's sin, it's our sin. Joseph is distributing grain and orchestrating a circumstance that exacts a confession. And the confession from Judah is not just for his sin, it's the sins of the family. That's what solidarity is. 
So Joseph is courageous in his confession. And then finally, Joseph shows us the spirit of sacrifice. Why? Because he empties himself. He offers to take Benjamin's place, the other favored brother who has been framed as a thief and now needs to stay and serve as a slave forever in Egypt. And Judah says this, listen, if I go home to my father without Benjamin, my father will die. Why? Because Benjamin is my father's favorite son. And whereas before, just saying that would have filled Judah with rage, now when he says that statement, Benjamin is my father's favorite son, he says, so therefore, let him go home to dad, I'll stay. I'll be a slave forever. (laughs) Wow. This is powerful stuff, you guys. You know why? Remember what Jesus said? By this All people will know you're my disciples. How? In that you voted right. Oh, oh, no, no, no. In that that you defend your doctoral statement with perfect accuracy. In that you understand the the difference between inerrancy and authority and inspiration. No. Here's how everyone will know that the gospel is real, in that you have love for one another. Oh, and by the way, Jesus defines love. Greater love has no one than this, than that he what? Lay down his life for his friend. That he lets Benjamin go home so that he stays as a slave. Do you love? Do I? That's how shalom happens. Not not doctrinal arguments. Certainly, for God's sake, and I mean it literally, not political arguments. Oh, no, no. Our testimony hinges on our love for one another. And Judah, Judah moves from hate and lust and fear and jealousy and greed and before that violence and theft to love. Shalom. How do we summarize? Here's the deal. No one is disqualified from God's story by some snapshot. And you know what I mean by a snapshot? Oh, here's a picture of Nathan, not his finest moment. Boom. I mean, we do that. It's got to stop. But at the same time, while no one is disqualified by snapshots, because God loves us unconditionally and infinitely, God also loves us too much to allow us to remain the same and will relentlessly pursue your transformation. All you got to do is respond. Judah did. Joseph did. Jacob didn't. So that at the end of Joseph's life, the one who was hated, sold, framed, unjustly accused, Toss into prison, forgotten, summarizes his life this way. You may have meant it for evil, God used it for good. It's all good. <laughs> Whereas Jacob, the one who was unconditionally loved, deeply favored by his mom at least, 
summarizes his life this way. Few and evil have been my years. What's the difference between the two? One allowed shalom to saturate his life and affect his family. The other didn't. We got work to do. And at Bethany, uh, there's at least three ways that you can get involved in bringing shalom into your family. One is uh, with a story class that you can take. And information's online. It's coming up in February. Another is we have these ancient paths experiences, which are a couple of meetings and then a weekend in the wilderness where you think through and pray through your own story and how God wants to redeem your family so that shalom can flow into the family systems of which you're a part. And a third is a class called Spiritual Journey that's offered every, every summer. There's other ways as well, but the point is this, God wants to move you out of your dysfunction into wholeness so that you're not Jacob, but Judah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are committed <laughs> to our transformation, and that no matter how deep we go down the rabbit hole of dysfunction and dis-ease, you invite us to wholeness. Give us the grace to go there, and the courage, and the confession. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.